0: And the series that we're starting, it will come on the screen soon behind me, is called The Reason for Everything. The reason for everything and the reason for the series is that there are so many things in this world that are not worth arguing and fighting about uh if any of you are on social media or if you're regularly looking on some of these online platforms like news 24 when you go into the comments columns i mean people seemingly uh, you can't hold an opinion about anything without getting completely crucified about it right the other day i was listening to two psychiatrists on the radio debate um, about whether or not people should be using antidepressants Now, uh, I must admit, I was quite intrigued, and at some stage, a switch went on or off, I don't know, and the debate got quite intense. The guys started getting quite upset with one another, and as people started phoning in, um, as one was debating for, the other one was debating against, of course, they added fuel to the fire, and it got quite intense. Now, at no stage, while I was driving, did I say, oh, these psychiatrists, they can't get along with one another, and I'm going to never go to a psychiatrist ever again. If anything, I was drawn in. These guys were so passionate about their positions. And I felt this was an important thing. I wanted to walk away informed. I wanted to hear the arguments for or against, whether they were civil or not. Now, most things don't fall into this realm of important things to argue and defend. However, if there is ever something worth investigating... If there is ever something worth digging deep and diving down into, it is questions around the existence of God because they, that question has implications, incredible implications and some would argue eternal implications. It is worth getting uncomfortable about. It is worth stepping into space that is maybe unfamiliar to us about. So over this series, we're going to be looking at some of these questions that people ask. Because if you're sitting here, and some of you sitting here, probably most of you would consider yourself a Christian. Maybe one or two of you are sitting here, and you and you would say, "Man, I'm skeptical." You know, someone dragged along me here and promised, promised me I'd find a girl or have good coffee, um, and and now you realise you've been duped, um, and you're skeptical. Some of you are sitting here, and maybe you're. Inquiring around the things of faith, the things of of Christianity, and you're kind of becoming convinced, but you're not entirely sure yet. Regardless of your position now, every single one of you—I can guarantee you—has had times or moments, either by reading a book, watching a YouTube video, an encounter, uh, just in real life, because those things shake us up. Maybe a, a friend or a family member has come up to you with a question. Every single one of you have had an encounter that has shaken your position and some of you have christians have had thoughts or questions or again been exposed to other people's thoughts or questions that have shaken your faith and if you're not particularly religious maybe you've had those moments where your position has been shaken but again i would argue that we need to be diving in courageously into some of these questions ordinarily on a sunday We would open up the Bible and we would read what the Bible says and and we would try to apply it in our lives. But what we're going to be doing over the course of of today and the following eight weeks is looking more at the questions and the evidence and going where the evidence leads. And of course, we being a Christian church... We strongly believe that the evidence points towards the existence of a God, and we are going to be exploring some of the further implications around that. But I want to encourage all of you to come along with us. If you are a believer, I also want to encourage you uh, to uh, to, to really use this as an opportunity to equip you. So that you are equipped to have foundations. Maybe you're sitting here and saying, you know, Stephen, I'm so confident, but you don't know that time when someone's going to come up to you and say, hey, what about? And you may not be prepared for that question. Or maybe you may be able to not be prepared for yourself, but for others and be able to engage wisely and winsomely with some other people's questions. So that's what the series is going to be about. Because it wasn't always like that. It wasn't too long ago where you just don't question the Bible. You just don't you just don't ask you sit in here and you believe and that's it and even if you've got questions no you don't vocalize those because that shows you don't have faith and over the course of the next nine weeks we're going to show that is not what the bible means by faith in fact jesus invites us he says believe on me because of the evidence is what he says in the book of john so we believe we're going to be looking at the evidence and then putting our trust in what we come to believe is true um, It wasn't too long ago that those who maybe did have questions about faith, who did have questions about the Bible, who did have questions about the existence of God, were on average either in ivory towers in the academic world out there or were on the more the fringe of society because you don't doubt these things. You just believe, you know, the past and you believe the church. But since 9-11, a bit of a shift has changed. And people who are maybe on the fringe with the doubts and the concerns or either just in ivory towers writing books, you and I don't read. A bunch of people have brought this really mainstream. Some very intelligent, some incredibly witty and creative people. People like the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. Uh, The the most common book that most of you have probably heard of at some level is his book, uh, um, The God Delusion. And what was once fringe thought is now popular thought. People are reading his books and devouring his books and passing their books around and listening to their podcasts and, you know, listen to this and adopting their arguments and therefore many, many more people are giving voice to what was previously a hidden doubt. So what do we do about this? How do we engage? And that's what we're going to be doing. John Lennon said in 1966... He predicted, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needed to argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. Well, that hasn't happened yet and I don't think it ever will. But let's go there. One of the things we're going to be doing additionally, and and this is really uh, uh, for... Uh, some of us as uh, Jesus followers is we're going to be showing that in the first three books of the Bible sorry first three chapters of the Bible all the major questions of life are asked and the world view is already beginning to take shape so we're going to be showing how and when they rise up in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And then we're going to be going, well, let's go with this question and let's look at the evidence. Let's see what else is out there. Let's engage and let's go together. Uh, finally, before we dive in, two more ways we want to encourage you, especially if you are part of Riverside. Um, we're in our Wednesday nights or our Tuesday nights or Thursday night, Thursday morning life groups. We're going to be looking at material that's going to help you have faith-filled conversations. So it's gonna be slightly different to the normal format that you have in your life groups. And um, if you're not part of a life group, maybe now's a good time for you to do this. to join a life group even if it is just for the next 9 weeks we do have if you go to the foyer go to the desk there our life groups are all there with contact details as well as online uh, but we are so excited about what's going to happen in that space and finally we have a library which is always open and available to anybody filled with great books but specifically we're going to have some books as- uh, aside that are around the topics that we're talking about and then finally in the foyer Emil and Emma th- they're kind of selling you great books that are at a fantastic price that are encouraging us uh, to think about the mission and the mission of God. And they also have some books that are gonna further encourage you if you wanna buy from them. So there's a number of ways that hopefully we can be mobilized to move forward together in this. So let's dive in. I don't know if you've ever had someone come up to you or maybe you've had the question, well, if you could just prove to me with absolute proof, kind of get, then I'll believe in God. As a, you know, a God, okay, answer, stays right you see everybody there he is oh, okay now i believe right bertrand russell was a famous atheist and i say was because not because he changed his beliefs but he's dead one of these dead intellectual guys um again very bright and um very winsome but he said oh well, sorry the question was posed to him so what if one day you get up to heaven and you realize you were wrong uh, what's the first thing you're going to say to god and he said this i'll say to god god You gave us insufficient evidence. Which raises the next question. Well, what is evidence? And what are the kinds of things that are going to persuade me that God is real? You see, I can prove to you. uh, I love science and I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, I, I can prove to you that sodium, which is a metal, and chlorine, which is a gas, put them together you get something we put in our mouths every single day table salts sodium chloride i can prove that to you with absolute proof i can also prove to you that under standard conditions the speed of sound is 1192 kilometers per hour however how do i prove to you using those methods how do i prove to you what we believe about justice what we believe about human dignity How we should treat people. How we should take care of the poor. Love. How do I use the same methods or evidence to prove things to you that you hold very dearly? In fact, there's probably a whole list of things that every single one of you hold to very dearly. You'd be prepared to suffer for and maybe even die for that you cannot prove in the same way that I can prove to you that sodium and chlorine is sodium chloride. Now, I'm not saying the scientific method is bad. I'm saying it's got limits. Most of the things that we do and we think during the day cannot be proved in those ways. So it's reframing how we think about evidence. In the 90s, I think it was 1999, a movie came out called The Matrix. And again, if you're under 30, you must check it out yourself. I'm not even going to try to explain much more than I'm going to do it this morning. But um, essentially, The Matrix was set in the movie, sorry, in the year 2200 AD, where a bunch of uber-intelligent robots were running the planets, and basically humans were in these little pink capsules. And they had this, uh, um, this, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, This reality put into their consciousness. And really, they were just these vegetables and they experiencing this thing called the matrix. It wasn't real. Right? And the whole idea is coming to realize that what they thought was real wasn't real. In fact, Elon Musk believes that it is only in a one in a billion chance that you and I live in base reality. In other words, he believes we're probably living in something like the matrix. And my question is this how do you prove that? We're not in the matrix. You might say, well, Stephen, you know, I woke up and I I patted my dog and I had coffee, which I could taste and it was warm. And, you know, my wife and I, we went out on a date last night. I'm engaging in reality. The problem is that is exactly what the matrix would feel like if you were in the matrix. (laughs) So what is evidence? Not all evidence. In fact, most evidence for you and I is not going to be in the realm of sodium plus chlorine equals sodium chloride. And yet we become convinced of so many things, including base reality. So let's look at the evidence and go where it leads. Now, the opening line in Scripture, the easiest verse to find in the Bible, Genesis 1 verses 1, says this. In the beginning, God. Now, we're going to stop there. In the beginning, God. God. Two claims are being made by that single verse. Number one, there is a moment called the beginning. Not the beginning of the day, the beginning of the month, beginning of the year. No, the ultimate beginning, claim number one. Claim number two is the reason or the cause behind the beginning is God. Now, once upon a time, I hate to sound all fatalist to you, but once upon a time, uh, McDonald's didn't exist. Uh, fluffy or your, your pet dog didn't exist um love didn't exist you didn't exist your grandkids didn't exist dolphins didn't exist stars and galaxies and planets did not exist there was a time where there was nothing not emptiness but actually nothing and now what we've got is stars galaxies planets fluffy mcdonald's and people like you people like you with consciousness people like you who love to live and to laugh and to love As uh, Andrew Wilson, who's uh, an apologist in England, he says, we've got pebbles. In other words, rocks and material and inanimate matter. We've got potatoes that are things that live. And we've got paintings. Art, creativity, consciousness, desire, beauty. Of course, the question is, where did all of that come from? Now, these words, in the beginning, God were written thousands of years ago at a time when no one believed there was any such thing, because most people believed there was a God or gods, but no one believed there was such a thing as the beginning. And in fact, until as recent as just over 100 years ago, the most common scientific uh, thought was that there was no such thing as the beginning. In fact, if we could go back in time to Einstein and ask him, Einstein, what do you think? He would say, no, the universe is in a static state. It has always been. We don't have to explain the beginning. But in 1939, Edwin Hubble, you've heard of the Hubble Telescope, he started observing certain things, and he started, one of the things he started observing was that the galaxies were moving further and further and further away from each other. Now, they're actually not flying through space like sources being thrown away. It's more like if I had to take a little balloon, I had to draw a whole lot of little you know, asterisk-style stars, And I start to blow up the balloon. The stars are moving away from each other as the balloon itself expands. So he started to realize that the universe itself is expanding and everything within it is moving away from each other. Now, just like there was a point where the balloon was pretty much nothing. So if you reverse the idea that everything's expanding, you get to a starting point, one of the other things you realized, and, and Newtonian physics would help us realize this, is that there is a finite set of energy in the universe which is slowly decreasing. Second law of thermodynamics. Much like you've got a, a, um, a, some batteries and a torch, and eventually that energy runs out. Now again, if we've got a decreasing net energy in the universe, that means there was a time and a point where it all started. I only realized this now in the last few weeks as I was doing some of this research, but this point, they called, some people call it a singularity. Uh, initially, it was actually called the cosmic egg. That sounds like a very sexy scientific thought. Sounds actually more like um, kind of science fiction, but cosmic egg, because everything, if you think about the word egg, all the life and the potential in the egg is there, Right? In fact, there was a scientist on the radio back then who was ridiculing this cosmic egg, egg beginning theory, and he called, oh, this big bang. And ever since then, now everyone calls it the big bang theory. Maybe some of us are calling it the cosmic egg theory and start a new uh, TV series while we're at it. Now, those under 30 understand the humor behind that one. Now, initially, this idea that the universe had a beginning was resisted by the scientific community. Now, everyone accepts it as science gospel. But it was resisted. Why? Because they knew once we concede there was a beginning, man, people with brains are going to start asking, well, how did that beginning happen? What caused it? And they were so nervous, we're going to start feeding into the Judeo-Christian idea that there was a God that caused it. And even though we're nervous about where the evidence leads, we still do need to be asking the question, where did it all come from? There was nothing, and now there's everything. And what caused it? And when you start asking that question, what caused it all, you've got two main answers. There's a whole lot of different sub-answers, but they fall into two big categories. The one category is God, and the other category is no God. God or gods caused it all. And even if you look at some of the ancient mythology, somehow it all came into being through some uh, act of God or gods or undirected evolutionary processes. So either mind came before matter or matter came before mind. And how did all of that happen? And where did it all come from? Which has a great explanatory power. At this point, the cosmic egg or the Big Bang or the point of creation, you can call it what you want for now. Did that happen from nothing or did something cause it? And I think a very good argument is this. If everything in the material world, the physical world, we're talking about atoms and we're talking about trees and parked iron prawns. If everything, that's what I mean by the material world, came into the existence at a point... That means the cause could not be something material. Do you understand that logic? That means the cause needs to be something immaterial. Let me say it in another way. If everything in the natural world came into existence at a point, time, matter, space, the cause of that singularity, cosmic egg, big bang, creation point, has to be something supernatural. Because nothing can start itself. Something else has to get the thing going. And that's when we talk about something mind, something immaterial, something supernatural, must have started it all. And I believe that's a very logical argument. The award-winning scientist, he mapped the human genome, Francis Collins, he said this, The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a definite beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. In the beginning, God or not God. But it doesn't stop there. Not only was there a beginning, but at this point, the Big Bang Cosmic Egg creation point, what didn't happen was this. When um, your kids learn how to blow things up. um, (laughs) What didn't happen was that. Just like leaves and paper and everything flying around. Because what we observe is that there's some incredible order. We don't have matter flying through space. We've got stars. We've got planets. We've got fluffy. We've got McDonald's. We see order. We have highly complex systems galaxies and we're going to talk about some of the order that we see just now and even atheist richard dawkins he says and he concedes well yes this universe does appear to have some design so how can we figure out if something is random versus something that has design even if it has order now at a number of levels we actually do this instinctively So if you had to go on the West Coast, which some of those beaches, I mean, it's it's not like Umschlange, Cape Town, Durban, where there's just hundreds of people on the beach all the time. If you had to walk onto one of those West Coast beaches with your family and you look about you and there's just a beautiful undulating beach and there's some ripples where the waves may have come in and out and there's the wet part where the wave is still going, the formerly wet part where the tide was last night, and then there's the dry part. You would rightly conclude you're the first person on the beach that day. However, if you're to see one of those fancy, we've seen them on the beach, those fancy sandcastles, you know, like a fancy mermaid sandcastle or a fancy BMW sandcastle. These are some of the different ones that I've seen. You don't need a mathematical formula to cause you to look around and say, who built this? We do that by instinct. Even these walls are maybe not nearly as complex as a mermaid sandcastle. We still assume they got here. William Densky is an award-winning mathematician, and he tried to ask this question mathematically: How do we determine if something is random, an appearance of order, or if it has design in it? And he coined this phrase. and, and uh, I'm just going to warn you: the next few minutes, just like, just we're going to have to concentrate. Thinking caps on. We're going. I mean, you may need a nap after the service. That's all cool. Um, but just come along with me. He coined the phrase specified complexity. For something to have design, it needs specified complexity, which ultimately comprises of two things. Number one, it needs to be specified, which I'll explain and I'll illustrate now. And it needs to be sufficiently complex. So to illustrate, if I had a coin, normal coin, heads and tails, and I had to flick the coin up 5,000 times and you to write down every single time that it heads or tails, Eventually, you'd have 5,000 characters telling me heads or tails. Now that would be incredibly complex. None of you would be able to remember that. However, no one would infer design from that, because it's not specified. It doesn't mean anything. It is random, so it's complex, but it's not specified. However, I had to flick a coin four times up in the air, and let's just say, I, "I get four times heads." Now it's specified like, well, that's extremely uncommon that you've got four heads in a row. But it's not nearly complex enough for you to think, you think, okay, well, number five, you'll get a tails. But now let's take another example. You're, you're, a, you're a soldier, and, and maybe that takes more imagination than anything else. And um, as so often happens in these movies, uh, one of your colleagues is taken captive by the enemy, and you get one of these videos that we've seen, again, in the movies or even on CNN. You get these videos where he's sitting in front of a camera, and you know he's telling you what the enemy wants you to hear. Uh, Come and do this, do that, drop the delivery here, do this, don't do that, or else is generally how that video goes. Now, as you're watching this video, and you're watching it for the 30th time, the 50th time, one of you starts to realize uh, because uh, what your soldier is doing is flipping a coin as he's talking. And one of you starts to realize, hang on, let's just forget what he's saying. Let's just start writing down the heads and tails pattern. And what starts to emerge is Morse code. And obviously you conclude, well, probably he's in control of this. So he's probably got a heads only coin and a a tails only coin. And now he is communicating with us. Here is where I am. Here's how you can find me and here's how you can get me out safely. Now you've got something that is sufficiently complex. It's full sentences. And it's specified. It means something. And from that point, we would conclude that there is design in that, that this is not him randomly flipping a coin while he is talking. Now, it just so happens that what we see when we look into the natural world, whether we look through a microscope at the biological world, or whether we look through a telescope at the world of astronomy, it just so happens that what we see is specified complexity. We see things that are very complex and they are specified. There's elements of design in this. Let me give you just a few examples. The first one is DNA. Now, DNA contains billions and billions and billions of letters. And if you had to check just one cell, like a, a, an amoeba is a single cellular organism, and yet, you say how much information is in just one of its uh, uh, nuclei, which is its nucleus, and that's where the DNA is, you'll get 30 Encyclopedia Britannica's full of information. The question is well, is, is it complex enough? Yes, it's very complex. Is it specified? Does it mean anything? Well, we've come to discover that DNA means everything, DNA tells everything in your cell what to do. To the point where, as a soul works and grows and develops, it becomes, you know, told you, you're going to have blue eyes or you're going to have brown eyes or you're going to have a great head of hair or you're going to look like mine, which is even better. Um, (laughs) Told you if you're going to become a liver or a kidney or a toenail. DNA says that all. Now, and again, if you didn't know what Encyclopedia Britannica is, ask your parents. It's kind of like Google 30 years ago. now for a long time scientists started to realize wow all of this code has meaning it is specified it means something it is has function causes things to happen gives definition and description but there was a large number of this dna that they had no clue what it meant and they used to call it junk dna and these scientists were saying oh you see you christians there's no order to this some of it means something but most of it means nothing because of junk dna there is no god throw away your bible scientists have largely abandoned even the phrase junk DNA because over the years they started to realize what they used to call junk DNA means something and they're slowly discovering that all of the DNA has function has meaning has purpose is specified this incredibly complex thing has design something else we see through the microscope is what we call again another big phrase irreducible complexity It's meaning something that is very complex, that if you try to break it down to reduce it, doesn't mean anything. It it doesn't work. So here's a very simple example, a mousetrap. So a mouse trap. Uh, someone designed it, someone said, this is exactly how we're going to catch the mouse, put the cheese here, snap, there we go, there's your mouse. Take those parts apart, you've got a spring lying around that on its own can do nothing. You've got some pieces of metal that on their own can do nothing, and you've got a piece of wood that on its own can do nothing. That's what we mean by an irreducible, cannot reduce it down to the sum of its parts, irreducible complexity. But when it's all together, it's got design and function. Now, one of the irreducible complexities we see in the cell, and you've got them in your body, is the bacterial flagellum motor. Now, we know what a bacteria is, kind of flies around our bodies. Uh, it's got, so, it's got a motor that moves it around at hundreds of, of body lengths per second. In fact, this motor turns five times faster than a Formula One engine. And this bacteria, because of the motor, can turn in a nanosecond which I think the F1 guys would love to be able to do. The problem is when you move these parts uh, away from each other, you've got a whole bunch of parts that mean nothing. You've got this highly complex, I mean, I think there's a picture there. Uh, If you just move on, you will find a picture of the, there we go. You've got this highly complex motor moving this thing around in amazing speeds. But when it's taken apart, those parts mean nothing, have no function. So what is the best explanation of that? You and I coming across a mousetrap would say someone designed it and thought about it to put it together. And I think if you and I were walking around inside somebody's cell and we saw one of these, we'd conclude, well, someone must have designed it and put it together because it works perfectly. Now, let's stop looking through the microscope. Let's look through the telescope. Scientists tell us that in the nanoseconds proceeding this Cosmic egg point, the Big Bang creation point, whatever. The nanoseconds proceeding that point, there were about uh, uh, different people say different things: 15 or 26, or some have even said 122 variables that had to be just so in order to have what we see around us. And I don't just mean complex life forms like bananas and you. What I mean is um, even to have stars, even to have planets, even to have pebbles and potatoes. These 122 or 26, I'll just do 26 for now, had to be perfect. With a margin of error of anything from a million to a million million, to margins of error, much greater than that. I'm not going to bore you with zeros and 10 to the power of this because that's meaningless to most of us. But for some of these numbers uh, or constants, physical constants is what the scientists call it, uh, the margin of error is so small, it's like standing on one side of the universe and aiming for a ruler on the other side of the universe and hoping to hit it. So to try to give some meaning to what this means. And by the way, let's say we've got 26 of these variables or constants or numbers not only did most of them have to be exactly what they are with that margin of error, but all of them had to be perfectly. So if one of them was out, we wouldn't have reality as we have it. So imagine 26 giant roulette tables. Is table the right word for the round part of the roulette thing, right? Roulette things, is that okay? Wheel, thank you. 26 roulette wheels. The smallest has a million numbers on it. Some are as big as our solar system. So you're like, well, we're going to see if luck works out for us. So we're going to start roulette wheel number one, and we're going to kind of roll it, and it goes da 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 Yes, one in a million chance. We got it. Okay, roulette wheel number two. I wonder if we can do that again. Oh wow, this you know this is a much bigger roulette wheel. A million million numbers on here. Spin the wheel. The ball da 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 da. Duh. Ooh, no, that's crazy what are the chances that roulette wheel number one and roulette wheel number two would land on the numbers that we need and you go through th- um, 11 12 13 14 15 and this one's the size of our solar system but nonetheless you throw the ball in and it goes around 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 eventually da, 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 and you're like yes and you know how sometimes you see in the movies duh Oh, it's like tornadoes and fires and everything falling apart and then the cessation of all existence. That's what we're talking about. Just to have the physical world as we know it. The other question is, all of these numbers had to exist and there's these physical laws. Where did the physical laws come from? They surely had to have existed before the actual moment of this cosmic egg or the Big Bang. Where did those come from? Who thought about it? Who designed it all? Again, was it God or was it not God? Now, uh, some of you have heard about the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The author is an atheist called Douglas Adams. Uh, I haven't read this book, even though I like the genre, and I've been encouraged to read it again recently. Um, so I've, and it's an amazing book, and it stood the test of time. Uh, but he, he said something which Richard Dawkins now quotes on the inside of his book, The God of Delusion the inside cover of his book. Apparently it's still there in most of your books if you own that book. And, And the point of what he said and now quoted by Richard Dawkins is to try to prove, well, just because everything looks so nice and wonderful, why do we need a God for that? And what I want to show you is I think that what they say actually works against what they're hoping it would mean and actually works towards the existence of a God, not the non-existence of a God. So this is what they say. Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful Without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too. In other words, if we see a beautiful garden, can't we just stop and? Or why do we have to imagine some mythical creature in order to satisfy some unmet kind of father issues we have in our lives? If we import some secular psychology as well. Now, I, I've been to some of these British gardens around some of the palaces in London and we've got the Emerentia Gardens. And you don't come to my garden. No, 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 in fact, come to my garden. My wife's done a fantastic job to make our garden look awesome. <laughs> i sleep inside tonight. <laughs> now, no one walks into a garden like mine or the Windsor gardens and goes, okay, where are the fairies? But here's what every single one of us believe. When you walk into a garden like that, we believe in gardeners, right? In my case, I believe in a wife. We don't need some mythical creature, but no one would walk into Windsor gardens and say, well, we need fairies. Otherwise we cannot enjoy this experience. Every single one of us, Rich Dawkins himself, would conclude that there was a gardener. The only difference between the Windsor Gardens and the sacred post runs is design and therefore a gardener. This must go there, it must go there. We'll take this out, we'll cut that like that, and now we can all enjoy it. So we've looked at a number of issues here. Something comes from nothing or something comes from God. Order comes from chaos or order came from design. Living things came from non-living things like pebbles and rocks, eventually, doesn't matter how long. Or living things came from an immaterial living being. And finally, intelligence, which most of us have, Comes from non-intelligence or intelligence came from an intelligence, immaterial being. Either all of this came from God or not God. Either matter came from mind or mind came from matter. Now, there are two main alternatives um, posed by those who want to say the, the not God part. And again, there are, are many arguments and, and um, they're all going to come down to, well, here's the top two. The one is something along these lines, well, lucky us. I mean, someone who won the lottery recently is like, you know, no one designed that. It's just like, lucky me. At least that's what we believe anyway. Or if you're playing poker and, you know, it's your first time ever playing poker and you get a royal flush. Well, no one designed this, just, well, lucky me. So all these variables had to be at play, and all these variables had to be, you know, just so, and just so, and just so, and and as much as it is so random, well, lucky us that we are in this universe as it is. Here's the problem, just to use the royal flush hand. Not only is it, well, lucky you, you got a royal flush. You would need to be getting royal flushes for the rest of your life. The problem is, after three Someone's going to be up in your face saying, what are you doing? Someone, we start assuming, without any mathematical formula, someone is behind the fact that you've just had three royal flushes in a row, right? The other theory, which is actually, even in the non-theistic world, is losing a lot of ground, uh, but was the multiverse theory. The fact that, well, if there's this infinite number of variables that have to be just so, maybe there are infinite number of universes out there. And we just happen to be in this universe where all the variables are just so. Again, that's a good theory. Nothing wrong with good theories. We also want to ask the question, well, is there any evidence? And at this point in time, there is no evidence for a multiverse theory. Remember, regardless of our preferences, we want to let the evidence speak for itself, even if we don't like the evidence. I went outside after church this morning and I I opened up my car door and I realized, wow, there's this massive dent on the side of my car. I would start assuming, well, either someone bumped their car into it or someone themselves bumped my car. And I could come and start asking questions. Well, you know, there's a dent in my car and um, someone must have done this. And you might say, well, you know, Stephen, that's a good theory. What if no one did it? I don't like your evidence. And I'd be like, well, that's fine. You're just going to give me an alternative set of uh, evidence. Up until then, I'm going to assume that somebody dented my car. Now, obviously, as a Christian, and I'm starting to wrap things up, I do believe that all that we've spoken about is better explained by a mind, by intelligence, by something that is immaterial or supernatural. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. All we've proven this morning... If we stick to what we've spoken about this morning, all we've proven is that belief in God is plausible. Maybe it's actually the best explanation of everything we've spoken about this morning. What we haven't proven is who this God is. Is it a he, is it a she, or is it a they? We haven't proven any any of the attributes of this God. We haven't spoken about whether this God is loving. Maybe the fact that we're in this really weird, uh, hostile, suffering universe, maybe he's a cruel God. And he's up there playing chess and having a fatal good time. As we progress through the series, we're going to be asking some of these questions which are going to be defining more and more the kind of God that we think um, created this universe that we're living in. We're going to be looking again at evidence. So let me end where I started. Not everything is worth fretting about and getting excited about and debating about. I and mean, if you like Star Wars, I won't hold that against you. And if you think fly fishing is a waste of time, I will pray for you. <laughs> but the implications of the question, is there a God? What is this God like if there is? Do we get to know this God or is he in kind of like, you know, on Mount Olympus and we never get to engage with these gods or these beings? And my life, my life of suffering, because many of our questions don't come from our minds, come from our hearts, specifically our broken hearts. If there is a loving God, how could he allow all sorts of suffering to come about? It's an emotional question before it's a logical question. We're going to be going there over the course of the next nine weeks. I want to invite you to come with me as we look at the evidence and hopefully go where the evidence leads. Just to let you know, heads up for next week, we're going to be asking the question, can science and God be friends? Because as you know, those are often polarized, sometimes by the religious community and sometimes, uh, and most of the time, by the scientific community. So... We've got lots to think about and we've got a long road ahead of us. And I really hope I've given you something to think about, uh, something to take with you. So let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you invite us to love and to worship you with our minds. When we talk about things like God and faith and religion, you're not asking us to abandon critical thinking Rational thoughts, curiosity, evidence. You're not asking us to never ask questions, never doubt. You're inviting us to that. You're inviting us to inquire. And Father, we thank you that as we go on this journey, that there are things that we can look at that can start shaping a world view. And Father, I'm asking that ultimately we start to realize that the worldview shaped by your scriptures and by you is the reason for everything, including the uncomfortable things. Thank you we can investigate it in this way. And I pray that as we go through this, as we process some of these thoughts consciously and some of them unconsciously, that you'll also work in that and ultimately revealing, taking us to a point where you as a person are revealed to us.